Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. From Sage Magazine, you're listening to Habitations. I'm Noah Sokol. And the place we're going to start is with a lone golf ball resting on the ground in the middle of an old-growth forest in Tennessee. Biologist and writer David Haskell spotted this golf ball sitting in a one-by-one-meter patch of forest that he had randomly selected to observe over the course of a single year. He wrote about the project in his 2012 book called The Forest Unseen. And the day he comes upon this golf ball, Haskell experiences a bit of a dilemma. Does Haskell remove the piece of man-made plastic from his patch of forest, or does he leave his patch untouched, as he had committed to doing at the outset of the project? Well, his first impulse is to remove it, he starts to question the impulse. He writes, Removing the golf ball would merely tidy up the most visually obvious of these human artifacts, preserving an illusion of the forest's pristine separation from humanity. But also, The impulse to purify might fail on a second deeper level. That's David Haskell reading from his book, The Forest Unseen. Human artifacts are not stains imposed on nature. Such a view drives a wedge between humanity and the rest of the community of life. A golf ball is the manifestation of the mind of a clever, playful African primate. This primate loves to invent games to test its physical and mental skill. To truly love the world is also to love human ingenuity and playfulness. Nature does not need to be cleansed of human artifacts to be beautiful or coherent. Here on Habitations, we want to understand the environment not only as a place that we humans inhabit, but also as something that inhabits us. Is there a clear line where the unnatural man-made world of a plastic golf ball ends and the natural pristine world of an old-growth forest begins? To answer that question and to discuss his last book and his forthcoming book, I'd like to welcome David Haskell as the first guest of our show. David Haskell is a professor of biology at Sewanee, the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, and the author of The Forest Unseen, which was a finalist for the 2013 Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction. He also has a new book due out in 2016 entitled Songs of Trees. David Haskell, welcome to Habitations. We just heard you read a passage about your deliberations over whether or not to remove a golf ball from the one-by-one-meter patch of forest that you observed over the course of a single year in your book, The Forest Unseen. So in the end, what did you decide to do? Uh, Well, it's a delight to be here on on the podcast, and my decision was to leave the golf balls in place nestled in the sandstone rocks uh, to join that great, long, slow geological dance from which they came and to which we, they will return and will all return. So why is your approach towards leaving these golf balls in place in the one by one meter patch you designated? Why would your approach be maybe different from the forest outside of your designated patch? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So this, this uh, circle of forest that I'd been observing for a year, I called the forest mandala. And at the beginning of this project, I decided, I set a series of rules. And one of those rules was not to mess with things within that circle, not to move things around, but to observe uh, mostly with my unaided senses. I had a hand lens and some binoculars. And, but apart from that, my, my rule was really just leave it alone and watch 
uh, watch what's happening inside of me, but also, of course, watch what's happening within this, this square meter. Uh, and the golf balls presented a particular uh, symbol, if you like, or a challenge, a metaphor for many other things. Here were these round pieces of plastic showing up in this forest that, as far as we know, is a little patch of old-growth forest. So they seemed in some way uh, dissonant, at least on the surface. Uh, but then if you look below the surface, really what, what um, that sense of dissonance emerges from what I think is a fallacious way of thinking about the world, and that is that anything that is produced by humans is, is in some way out of the natural order. And so the leaving these plastic balls in place and became a symbol for accepting uh, my belonging and humanity's belonging in this world rather than us being aliens or somehow living on on the other side of some divide that separates us from the community of life. You touch on the idea a few times about how we relate to nature is a moral question as well as a question that is imbued with the complexities of the time scale that we're considering. So can you talk about the interaction of these of these two ideas? Yeah, the, the, and it's a complicated interaction. I think the uh, the question of time scales is one that is very challenging for us because we have a mind that is uh, that has evolved to consider things on the scale of a few minutes to a few decades, perhaps, and maybe just a little bit longer. But of course. Uh, the, the community of life and the, the physical world that we live on is much, much older than that, four and a half billion years old, at least for this planet, much older um, in terms of uh, the, the universe beyond that. And, and those timescales are unimaginable, and yet we have to try to imagine them to put our own actions into context. The same is true uh, for uh, things that reach into less deep time. For example, when we're talking about climate change, we, we need to consider the, the Eocene and the Jurassic and, and so forth going back tens of millions of years. But even if we could just go back 10,000 years to the, to the end of the last ice age, North America was crawling with animals that are no longer here anymore and that the plants and other animals had, had adapted to. And so all our discussions of, of for example, forest ecology in North America are in this strange, strange context where many of the big players have recently left the stage and we're, we're, we're discussing a bereaved forest. And so the, the questions, for example, about how many deer are appropriate uh, within a particular patch of woodland, how we should manage forests. Uh, for disturbance and how many young forests versus older forests we need. Those discussions tend to assume that, you know, what we experienced in the, you know, the 1900s is, is, is somehow normal or natural, whereas in fact it was an, an aberration. So, and the question of, of uh, ethics and morality, I think those are the really deep and difficult questions. To a large degree, I think much of the discourse about environmental ethics is still 
in a pre-Darwinian mode. And by that I mean a mode that regards humans as somehow different from the rest of life's community. And that difference, of course, um, for some people is, is, a, is a difference um, to do with God, to do with theism. But I think even within secular discussions of environmental ethics, there's this notion that humans have become now so abundant, so estranged from what we imagine to be nature, uh, that we have uh, become something different on, on this planet than everything else. And, and I disagree quite vehemently with that view. And I think the challenge is, how can we develop an ethic of belonging, an ethic that views us as just as biological, just as wild, just as um, uh, fully incarnate in this world as a redwood tree or a salamander or an E. coli bacterium? And if we regard ourselves in that way, how do we root our ethics? And that ethic has to be one that encompasses not just human behavior, but the behavior and the consequences of the actions of many organisms. Um, and, I, and I think that's a, that's a real deep uh, challenge that we haven't come up with, we haven't fully answered yet. And I'm trying to work through some of this now in my, in my current work, listening to trees and, and, and literally asking them what, what they might have to say about these, these questions of the roots of a truly biological ethic, an ethic of belonging in this world. So you mentioned you're working on a new book entitled Songs of Trees, which is due out in 2016. So can you tell us a bit what that title refers to, Songs of Trees, and how does the song of a tree differ from the sounds around a tree? The, the, yeah, the book uh, is titled, for the moment, Songs of Trees. And what I'm doing is going to individual trees in different places uh, around the world. So there's a tree or the remains of a tree in Scotland. There's a tree in, in uh, the occupied territories um, on, on the West Bank uh, near Israel. Uh, there are various trees in, in different parts of, of the Americas, in, in Ecuador and Canada and in the U.S., and at each tree, my practice is, is first to, to listen to the sounds, both the obvious sounds and the hidden ultrasonic and subsonic signals coming from within that tree, because they reveal an awful lot about the life, the physiology, the challenges that that tree faces. So partly I'm, I'm applying a, literally applying an acoustic stethoscope to each tree uh, to... Um, to listen to some of its stories, uh, to some of the challenges that it faces, but also be beyond the acoustics of the of the of the stories. And this is how I think of songs of trees: is a combination of uh, the acoustic productions of the trees and the sounds that are echoing within its branches, with the tales and the stories from human culture, from tree culture, from the birds, from the fungi, from the microbes that live inside the tree leaves, all these things combine to produce an amazing chorus uh, and a chorus that's rooted way back in, in billions of years of life's history that tells us about the nature of connections in life, the nature of networks, the ways that uh, 
what we perceive of as separate individuals are in fact not separate. They're connected into, into complex networks. And so that's the song for me, is the combination of all these stories merging and swirling around a particular tree, a particular location. And what I'm trying to do is listen to those and then to write about them, uh, to share some of those songs. There are limits to our understanding of, of other species' perceptions of their own world. And I'd like to talk about those limits. But before we do that, I, I just want to talk about some of the things that we do know, because there are some perceptual differences between different species that are really quite amazing, which you discuss in your book. And three that really caught my eye was uh, the eyesight of chickadees, the six tongues on moths, and, and I don't even know how to describe it, the utterly strange perceptual world of fungus. So can you just touch on some of what we know about the perceptual world of, of these three very different organisms? Yes, and, that's, and I'm glad you've, you've sort of honed in on this because this is one of, the, for me, one of the great joys of biology is, is learning more about and deepening our appreciation for the diverse ways that organisms perceive their environment, but also process the information that they're getting from uh, the other creatures that they're, you know, that they're bound up with or the, or the physical environment that they're, they're living in. And the, the chickadees, in some ways, are the, uh, you know, phylogenetically, in terms of evolution, they're the closest uh, to us of the examples uh, that, you, that you mentioned. They're, they're vertebrate animals. They have... They have uh, two eyes. They've got a brain that is not structured exactly the same as ours, but it has some similarities. And yet their eyesight is quite radically different from ours. They have much, much higher resolution. So where I might see just a little piece of bark on a tree, they can see all the details and the flakes on that bark and the hidden little spider eggs and so forth. So they go around the world essentially with uh, what with the visual acuity that we could acquire with a really good magnifying glass. And that's just how they see their world. On top of that, they have an extra color. They perceive UV light. So we have three primary colors. They have four. So they're seeing a color that we can barely imagine. And then, you know, we see we've got three primary colors which relate to three receptors in our eyes. But the richness of our colored world comes from the combinations of those colors. And so what is UV combined with red or UV combined with yellow look like? The, the uh, juxtaposition and the combination of those uh, colors is just, for, at least for me, takes my imagination to the edge of where it can go. And then there's, there's a wall or a drop off. It's living in a world that is utterly, a visual world that is utterly different from ours. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, if you like, are the, the mycorrhizal fungi that have, instead of a knotted up sort of intelligence, the way we do, all our nervous system is knotted up into a brain and a spinal cord. Their intelligence and their sen sensory system is extremely diffuse. It's spread through many many fungal strands, hyphal strands that penetrate all through the all through the soil and are involved in continual chemical conversations with other fungi and also with plant roots and 
probably also with bacterial communities. And so there's a whole lot of chatter. It's not an acoustic chatter. It's a chemical chatter between the fungal strands and the, the, the community that it lives in. And so we know this, this creature is in conversation. It's in conversation over almost of its entire body. There is no centralized location for the processing of that information, and yet the information is indeed processed so that the fungus can grow more towards food or away from places that it doesn't want to go. It knows which plant roots to connect to and which ones to dissociate from. And then the moth has uh, chemical receptors all over its body and particularly on its feet. And so when a moth lands on our fingertip, it is tasting us through its feet. I imagine this a little bit like, uh, uh, you know, having your tongue in six different glasses of wine, tasting them all simultaneously. And so its, its sensory world is one of, of chemical receptors of taste that must just fill its, its whole, uh, all the ganglia and other brain-like structures down its back must just be humming, must be thrumming with this incredible sense of, of taste that it's getting through its feet. These are some examples of what we do know about how other species perceive the world. There are, however, limitations to how much science can ever understand in terms of what another species is perceiving. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's sort of at a deep level, our understanding is always incomplete and limited on everything. I think, um, uh, epistemologists and other philosophers have, have uh, shown that quite convincingly that we, we never know anything for, for sure. When it comes to subjective experience of the world, of course, we, we can never know anything about another human subjective experience, let alone a snail's. However, I do think that uh, the scientific, exper scientific experiments can take us to a point where we see the, both the commonalities and the differences more clearly. So, for example, neurological studies can, can show uh, how a, a dog's brain responds to antidepressants, for example, in a similar way that a human brain responds. And they can also look at more uh, evolutionary distant relatives like snails and show, yes, indeed, there are, there are nerves there that, that are based on a similar similar cellular structure to our own, but they're, they're knotted together in, in very different ways. So science gives us the grounds for better imagining of these other creatures. And I think that leads to uh, enriched imagination, but it also leads to a place where empathetic understanding, uh, not sentimentality, but an understanding that this is a creature uh, to whom I am kin, but also a creature that is radically other from myself. And so science helps us keep that uh, tension in mind so that we are both um, the same and different. Another moment in the book where you really brush up against the limitations of science and scientific tools to capture the sort of the extent of beauty in the world is is on a I think a summer day when you're observing a number of gray squirrels who appear to just really just be 
playing and, and enjoying themselves in, in the sun. So can you discuss this observation a bit and, and how this led you to reflect on, on what science can capture and, and deepen in terms of our understanding of beauty in the world and, and what it cannot? Exactly. And so I was, I mean, it's a fairly simple moment, uh, just, and I think many people have had similar experiences, sitting, watching uh, some some creatures going about their business. And, and these squirrels were just hanging out in the sun. They were playing, they were sunbathing, and they seemed to be uh, taking delight in the warm rays of the sun. I believe this was in in late summer or early early autumn. And what struck me as, as someone who's been involved in biology education for more than 20 years is that those kinds of observations have no place whatsoever in the curriculum of modern biology. The notion that a squirrel might enjoy itself or that a snail might have some kind of conscious experience of the world uh, it just doesn't enter into the curriculum it's not in the textbooks it's considered if it's considered at all it's considered a, a stupid question or a soft-headed question um, and science in some ways depends on maintaining that separation because after all we take the squirrels relatives the rats and the mice and we do all sorts of things to them that they do not enjoy so it's certainly convenient for modern science to dismiss these possibilities and to select out through the educational process anyone who feels a strong connection to the squirrels in, in, that, uh, in those experiences of enjoyment. And I think it is no coincidence that uh, that particularly narrow scientific view that excludes those possibilities those internal subjective possibilities for other creatures, that uh, connects very conveniently into the, uh, the spreadsheets and the formulas of the modern industrial economy. So if we think of a, of a forest as a collection of, of machines and of flowcharts and of diagrams, it's pretty easy to then convert that into another set of flow charts and diagrams in an economic spreadsheet and just uh, liquidate the forest. Uh, if we think of the forest as comprised of our cousins, of our blood kin, uh, then it gets a little harder to, um, to take that view and slip it straight into a spreadsheet up in a corporate boardroom in Manhattan or Connecticut and move some numbers around and boom, you've lost 100,000 acres of forest to some other so-called land use. Uh, so now this is not some grand conspiracy theory. I just think that, that in terms of how we go about teaching science, how we go about practicing science, we need to remember that the, uh, the object, objective approach, the, the approach that is based on quantification and on not assuming anything about things that we can't measure, that's a very powerful and useful and productive and fruitful approach to querying the world, but it does not reveal the entirety of the reality of the world. There's a quote that came to mind uh, when, I, when I read this passage about the, the four squirrels, uh, and it's from an article by the anthropologist David Graeber. 
I'd like to read you this quote and, and see what you think about it. He writes, why do animals play? Well, why shouldn't they? The real question is, why does the existence of action carried out for the sheer pleasure of acting, the exertion of powers for the sheer pleasure of exerting them, strike us as mysterious? What does it tell us about ourselves that we instinctively assume that it is? So what do you think it tells us about ourselves that, that we humans assume that playing is some kind of mysterious phenomenon? Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent question. It's a great quote. Um, I think it depends on who the we is. So humanity is is not just one. You know, there there are multiple different uh, groups within that. I think for some people, uh, sort of religious beliefs, um, will that tie into to sources of meaning in other parts of their life, really put up a, a barrier to to this view that non-human animals uh, might be strongly connected to us in, in, in many ways, for example, through, through play. Uh, there are other groups of people, for example, I would say many academics, uh, f- who almost never play themselves. <laughs> so uh, the, uh, there may be a little bit of, well, w- human life doesn't involve any play and enjoyment, so I'm sure as hell these other creatures aren't getting it either. So uh, maybe there's a, there's a, a reflection of, of our own being outward onto others there. I think I already pointed out that there's an um, economic convenience to that view is that it allows us to then use non-human animals in, as objects in, um, in industrial ways, uh, in, in factory-like uh, farms and labs and, and so forth. Uh, but I think Ultimately, it's it's a limitation. You know, the answer to the why question, it's a limitation of imagination. It's a question of the culture that we're brought up in. Have we been asked to imagine that these other creatures could play, could enjoy themselves? And I think that you know the the good news is that if we are brought up in that culture that's asking those questions, it doesn't seem so strange to us. And I think that's one of the good things that's happening now is that there, at least in some parts of our culture, these questions are becoming uh, an important part of how people think about the world, how they raise their kids, uh, and how they, how they make decisions about their own lives. And again, you know, there's uncertainty about that. We don't, we don't know if those squirrels truly are enjoying, or maybe they're just machines like Descartes imagined them. But I think the Descartes' view is becoming less and less plausible the more we know about neurobiology and the deeper we get into relationship with other creatures. In your teaching, is there a way that you encourage this view of embracing mystery while also teaching your students to have a view rooted in the traditional idea of scientific inquiry? My students would be the ones who could give you the, a, a better answer than I could. Um, what I imagine myself to be doing is both introducing students to the you know, the main ideas within a particular discipline and the ways that people go about asking those ideas, but also to step back and, and examine how that discipline fits in with other ways of asking questions about the same topic, whether it's forests or the biology of bird life and and so forth. 
one thing that I do emphasize in all my classes is direct experience, physical, sensory experience with whatever the topic is that we're addressing. There's only so much you can learn, and I would say it's a fairly limited amount you can learn through sitting around having a classroom discussion. If you're in a class, say I teach a class about food and hunger, go down to the local food bank and work there. Uh, uh, do some experiments with changing your diet. Uh, engage with the topic that you, are, that you are studying with your mind. Engage in it. Engage in that topic with your body and your senses. Because I think truths uh, emerge from relationship uh, more so than they do from abstraction. There's a passage that comes near the end of your book where you were reflecting on the ways in which you have come to know this tiny patch of forest over the course of a year, as well as the ways that you feel this tiny forest patch will always surpass or exceed your, your grasp of understanding. Can you read this passage for us? Yes, absolutely. So this is from the from very end of the book. Uh, Despite this feeling of belonging, my relationship to this place is not straightforward. I simultaneously feel profound closeness and unutterable distance. As I have come to know the Mandela, I have more clearly seen my ecological and evolutionary kinship with the forest. At the same time, an equally powerful sense of otherness has grown. As I have watched, a realization of the enormity of my ignorance has pressed on me. Even simple enumeration and naming of the Mandala's inhabitants lie far beyond my reach. An understanding of their lives and relationships in anything but a fragmentary way is quite impossible. Yet, the separation that I feel is more than a heightened awareness of my ignorance. I have understood in some deep place that I am unnecessary here, as is all humanity. There is loneliness in this realization, poignancy in my irrelevance. So what does this loneliness and this poignancy leave us with? Is a connection to nature what we should seek as humans, or is it a more of an uncomprehension or unknowingness that we should seek? Um, yeah, I would rephrase that because I, I don't think we can be connected or disconnected from nature. I think we are nature. Um, we can be connected or disconnected from an awareness of th the fact that we are as natural as, as any other species on this planet. Um, I think this, this tension between belonging and between otherness is uh, one of the, uh, the great tensions. It's also creative tension, and maybe I could come back to that in a moment. But it's this great tension that applies to any serious engagement with place. Uh, at first, we think we know it all, and then we, we get to this place where we think we know nothing and then we learn a little more and we go back and forth between the sense of I, I think I understand some of the processes here some of the history some of the organisms and then as we go deeper into deeper layers we see more complexity 
and we feel uh, a distance from any hope of fully grasping. And so I think what we should aim for is to be on that path, to walk that path, go into the ignorance as well as go into the in, in enthusiastic exploration with the hope that we will uh, continue to know more, even if we can never fully get to the place where we literally uh, know it all. And I think there's a reason why the know-it-all is a uh, is an insult that's delivered um, in our culture is that there's a certain boredom uh, or a certain hubris in believing that we know it all. Uh, on the other hand, there's a humility in realizing that, yeah, I know one or two things here, but there are a thousand, thousand other things that I do not know. I'm fired up about learning more about them, but I'm not deluding myself that I will ever come to understand all, all the intricacies of this place, all the identities of the ecological constituents of a forest and the way that their relationships have played out over time and, and in, the, in the present moment. So I think leaning into that tension is, is, uh, is important. And the creative aspect of that, I think, is both for, it's a stimulation for the human imagination, but I also think that's the fundamental tension within evolution is between kinship and otherness. So the creative process in evolution is when you take one lineage, one species, and it divides into two that then follow different evolutionary trajectories and diversity increases. And so within that process, there's this ongoing push and pull between unity and diversity. And I think that's one of the, the um, the great forces of life that has produced this this incredible world that we that we live in, uh, incredibly broken world as well as incredibly beautiful world. Well, David Haskell, thanks so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure, and thank you for your excellent questions. It's an honor to be with you here on the on the podcast. Thank you. Habitations is a production of Sage Magazine at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Our staff includes Ivana Andrade, Jason Daniel Schwartz, and me, Noah Sokol, with production help from the Yale Broadcast Center. You can subscribe to Habitations in the iTunes Store or through the Yale iTunes U channel. For more information about Habitations and about Sage Magazine, check out sagemagazine.org. And thanks for listening.